Stanbridge, and this is Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Today, I welcome three more authors whose work has appeared in recent issues of the journal. First, we'll hear from Michael Adorjan, who will tell us what happened when he and his co-author, Rose Ricciardelli, asked groups of Canadian teenagers about their social media use. Next, Maria Finstotter describes her research with Zheng Wu on how discrimination affects people's feelings of belonging to their communities and to the nation. And finally, Philippe Burns tells us about the study he and Aaron Shore conducted on media coverage of public health crises in two very similar towns, one a white settler community, the other indigenous. So, an interesting mix of topics in this episode. Away we go. Teenagers these days, am I right? Their heads down, oblivious to everything except the screens on their smartphones. Well, this is how teens are usually portrayed these days. But is this who they really are? Two Canadian sociologists wanted to find out. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me uh, on the program, Karen. My name is Michael Adorjan. I'm an associate professor at the University of Calgary. Dr. Adjordan and his co-author, Rose Ruggiardelli, have an article in the February 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology titled Smartphone and Social Media Addiction, Exploring Perceptions and Experiences of Canadian Teenagers. It provides a perspective on teens' apparent obsession with screens that tends to be lacking in the literature. Yeah, it was very interesting to be involved uh, in this project. And and again, I would like to uh, credit my co-investigator, Rose Ricciardelli at Memorial. You know, we worked on this together. And uh, my research, as I mentioned, I have a long-standing interest on youth, societal discourses of youth. Um, and what I was really drawn by is is the fact that there's so many interesting studies out there on cyberbullying and, and sexting, uh, many studies from a quantitative framework, which produced invaluable findings, you know, in terms of the extent of, of young people's experiences with these things. But still, there was a bit of a lack of research on qualitative understandings, which this research attended to. Um, so understanding from their perspective, in their own words, what they found works, what doesn't work, and why, and their understandings and, and reactions to responses among uh, adults in their lives regarding these technologies. Mainstream media also tends to neglect teenagers' perspectives when they portray them as screen addicts susceptible to dangers like cyberbullying and various kinds of self-harm. The current generations uh, dubbed screenagers or teens uh, having a an internet addiction disorder, which the original term for internet addiction disorder was coined by a psychiatrist, Ivan Goldberg, but it was done satirically, just just to kind of poke fun at the notion. But it's interesting that research within psychology and psychiatry has become more nuanced. You would often find less reference to general internet addiction than specific aspects of that, such as social media addiction, smartphone addiction, which explains the title of our own paper. So we try to take a fairly balanced approach in, in our paper that doesn't dismiss these, but we, all, we want to recognize that there are some important areas of concern here. So how do you find out how teenagers relate to smartphones and social media? Well, you ask them under scientific conditions. 
which is what Adorjan and Ricciardelli did through focus group research. Focus group research is being used by marketers to determine, you know, what what people's favorite cheese are. You know, you get around in a circle and you, you have a sample of food and you talk about it. But focus groups have been used also in qualitative criminological research and sociological research on perceptions and experiences. What I really liked about using focus groups with teens is there's something that offsets the power dynamics of one-to-one interviews. You know, it's just like when I'm conducting a one-to-one interview there, I am the researcher, there's the person being the participant in the research. But what, what you find in these focus groups, you really do get a lot of dialogue within the groups themselves. And so they were very open-ended. It began with just like, are you on social media? What do you think and about that? And how often do you spend time with that? And and then and, and sometimes completely independent of me or whoever was conducting the focus groups, whether it be my colleague Rose or other RAs that we had, the, the discussion would very naturally right, go into different directions like parental surveillance or privacy and privacy management and these sort of areas. So I do value focus group research. It is a bit difficult in terms of the transcription work, but um, overall it produces rich, very rich results. Here, Dr. Jordan describes the teens that participated in their research. We focused on those who are 13 and 19 in this study. So those who are very new to being a teenager, to those who were a junior undergraduate students and uh, already in university. Uh, so the range was 13 and 19. And we also had the teens who were hailing from this area called Cyber City, which is kind of an anonymized region of, of urban Western Canada, as well as rural Atlantic Canada. And we dubbed that region Cyberville. The focus groups revealed that teenagers were much more mindful and reflexive of their screen and social media usage than is usually suggested by blanket terms like smartphone addicts and screenagers. The discussions also put the lie to the notion that it's only teens that have been captured by the new technologies. The societal discourses are often focused on teens, and the whole idea of the focus on youth being addicted to this preempts consideration about parental modeling of behaviors relation to technology. So certainly many of them embrace the notion of addiction. So, you know, even, even if you were to ask them, do you really think that you're actually addicted? They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And they would sometimes talk about themselves being hooked and stuff. But what was interesting was some of the, the focus group discussions revealed really interesting, uh, somewhat humorous stories about a father being hooked on YouTube videos while the family's out at dinner. And, and, and the kids were complaining about this and the kids were trying to get the parents to be less hooked for quote unquote on these technologies. So really, I think the most fascinating thing to me is the problematization of the notion of the digital immigrant versus the digital native so-called. I think there needs to be research that attends to these nuances in age and the reflexivity. As for fears that screens are making teens less social, it doesn't appear so. As respondents said, much of their use of social media was driven by social concerns albeit as mediated by the technologies. The second thing I find fascinating is debate over the affordances of these technologies. So what I mean by that are the particular features of the technologies and the constraints in terms of how they're being used and and how they're enabling us to use them. So for example, recently, I think it was Instagram that debated removing the like 
uh, feature, you know, the kind of thumbs up feature. And I forget if they actually implemented that or not, to be honest. But I think that they were debating that because having that thumbs up, thumbs down or not impacts how you can use these technologies. Now, in our focus group discussion, Snapchat was still one of the most popular platforms among teens, among young people, in particular, the Snapchat snap streak feature. <laughs> Um, you know, you send a message to, it could be a funny face or something or a picture of, of a food or whatever it is. And then it disappears when, when you send it to a friend. But there's also a feature in that that gives you a sort of a points system, if you like. And that has 24 hours, I think it is, to respond. And then you maintain this points system, this streak. And that's it, what's interesting is that teens admit that it's silly and, and rather, you know, inane but they do it anyway, and they're locked in based on the affordances of the technology. And one quick example from the paper is a 19-year-old who feels a bit of reticence using the snap streak feature, but compelled to use it anyway. And you know, she says, you're obligated to reply to people because you don't want to lose your streak. It's so annoying, but you just do it anyway just to keep up with it. So that feature of the technology draws youth to that. And also it connects with what I think is the third aspect of the paper that I find interesting is the social nature of the technology and how that connects with quote-unquote addiction. So after asking, for example, a group if they could live without social media for a full week, uh, one participant replied, quote, maybe if everyone did it. So it's interesting because her response then suggests that the addiction is not primarily from the technology, but rather the social connections reinforced online and associated with that anxiety around pure perceptions and judgments and one's reputation. So balancing the, the concern for social connection with the affordances of these technologies, I think is a really interesting area of research to pursue going forward too. So it seems the kids are all right when it comes to smartphone and social media use. Parents, especially, I, I would say, you know, one of the messages really is simply not to panic or feel overwhelmed about technology, but understand them in the context of their use by both adults and, and young people, not to dismiss young people as a generation that is being isomorphically and caustically impacted by technologies. I don't think that's helpful to have these sort of societal discourses of teenagers as screenagers or a destroyed generation. It's simply not the case. I mean, many young people are, are quite politically active on social media. They're more socially aware on social media there than ever before, and they draw support and find resilience and mental health from, from each other on social media. And so I think that those are important takeaways, certainly. That said, it doesn't mean that teenagers' use of these technologies can't lead to challenges or harm. Carers of teens, of course, need to monitor and provide guidance around their online interactions. But this doesn't necessarily entail the heavy-handed technological solutions that parents are often pressured to engage. A solution often marketed to parents, and especially mothers, and that's not a coincidence, are these forms of monitoring software, sometimes dubbed spyware, a little more pejoratively, mind you. But these are often pitched to parents to safeguard their children. You can monitor screen time that go into more invasively to monitor you know, what your children are doing, who they're friending, what they post online, and so forth. Of course, many teens in, in our own study, focus groups with teens, they abjured this uh, they talked about it being a debasement of trust. But it's important, I think, for especially for parents to understand monitoring children doesn't just mean using technology to surveil 
their children's use of technology. Monitoring can also include verbal check-ins, communication. If, if established early enough and fostered at a young age, certainly help children internalize these messages that are often producing eye rolls in the teens. Um, but for, for younger especially, I think it just helps foster uh, a better sense of digital citizenship where children are able to have a better sense of self-management. You know, and online and offline are increasingly ambiguous conceptual spheres anyway. And if anything, I'll just close with this idea that I like to uh, reinforce is that the youth most at risk online are those often most at risk offline for reasons long established by both psychology and sociology. And putting that into proper context, I think, is the role of what we do in sociology as well. Smartphone and social media addiction, exploring the perceptions and experiences of Canadian teenagers by Michael Adorjan and Rose Ricciardelli appears in the February 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. What fosters our feelings of belonging? And what happens to our sense of belonging when we're subject to the animosity and prejudice of others? My next guest wanted to know. So my name is Maria Finstochter. I'm a third-year PhD student in sociology at the University of Toronto. My own research interests focus on politics and inequality pretty broadly. And my co-author, Changwu, he had a lifelong interest in issues of immigration, integration, and discrimination. And he unfortunately passed while the paper was in review. And so I sort of finished this in his memory. Ms. Finn's daughter and Zheng Wu were especially interested in how people's experience with discrimination affected their feelings of belonging. Their research resulted in the article, Perceived Racial and Cultural Discrimination and Sense of Belonging in Canadian Society, which appears in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. We started working on this in the fall of 2018, which is around the time when we had, you know, the People's Party of Canada was founded in, in Canada by Maxime Bernier. There's the American Muslim travel bans. Uh, there's all this renewed debate in Quebec and around the country about banning religious symbols. And it just got us thinking a bit more about how this discrimination, both on the personal level and the institutional one, what that does to our social fabric and how it harms the people who experience it. And so that's what got us into this research on the effects of discrimination on people's sense of belonging, both within their own groups and then also to the Canadian nation as a whole. Belonging is a feeling, a sensation. How do we know when we belong? Yeah, so a sense of belonging really, it consists of feeling integrated and valued and safe within a community. And so it involves, you know, how much a person identifies with and chooses to be part of the nation, but it also reflects whether that person feels accepted, secure, and at home there. And so that's why we're focused on this. You know, it matters as a measure of social integration and cohesion, um, but it also reflects on the levels of social bridging and trust between groups. And so having a strong sense of belonging, it both feeds into these sort of strong superordinate national identities, but it also binds people together and increases trust within communities. And so because it rests so heavily on feeling safe, discrimination, we reasoned, would severely negatively impact um, the sense of belonging. Okay, so we know it fosters a sense of belonging, but how do we measure it? And how do we go about finding out whether belonging is affected by discrimination? Finstotter and Wu first drew on the existing literature to determine their research questions. We had two main questions, which were first, 
how does discrimination differentially impact national sense of belonging and in-group sense of belonging? And then we were curious also about how much stronger this effect might be for racialized people in Canada compared to white Canadians. And so we drew on these two theoretical models. So there's the rejection identification model, which is from Brascom, Schmidt, and Harvey, and then the rejection disidentification model from uh, Yasinskaya, uh, Liebkind, and Solheim. The first one, the rejection identification model, argues that within contexts of stable and pervasive prejudice, discrimination can actually increase in group identification among uh, discriminated minority groups. And this is because they salvage their self-esteem and sense of well-being by increasing their in-group sense of belonging and identification and turning away from the out-group. And so that led us to our first hypothesis, which would be that discrimination would increase in-group sense of belonging. And then the rejection disidentification model said that discrimination causes national disidentification and out-group hostility. And so from that, we were able to hypothesize that discrimination would decrease national sense of belonging. And so using these questions and these frameworks, we applied this to the Canadian context, looking at what this would look like within a context of multiculturalism, which is premised on this idea of tolerance and acceptance. And we know from reports and other research and personal stories that within that multiculturalism, there is a lot of discrimination being experienced. They then sought data that would help them test their hypotheses. All right, so we used data from Statistics Canada's uh, 2013 General Social Survey. And there they have a question that measures self-reported sense of belonging. So it just asks on a scale, I think of one to 10 or so, uh, asks respondents to describe their own sense of belonging to Canada and then to their own ethnic and cultural group. And so using those as our outcome variables, we had national sense of belonging and in-group sense of belonging. And we then used OLS regressions, uh, measuring the effect of discrimination on those sense of belongings for first a combined group, and then we ran them separately for racialized people and for white people. So what did the study reveal about discrimination and belonging? Were their hypotheses confirmed? For me, I thought there were two important results that we produced. And first was that discrimination of any kind. So we measured discrimination on the basis of ethnicity or culture or race or religion. And so discrimination of any kind reduced both in-group and national sense of belonging for everybody across the board. So contrary to this RIM or the um, rejection identification model, which hypothesis that discriminated groups turn inwards and strengthen their in-group sense of belonging in the face of prejudice, we found that in Canada, discrimination wears down in-group sense of belonging as well as national sense of belonging. And I think the second important finding we had was that discrimination has significantly stronger effects on sense of belonging for racialized people in Canada. And so while discrimination might harm everyone, it's especially damaging for people who are already socially marginalized. So these are populations have a lower starting point for sense of belonging, and the effects of discrimination on sense of belonging are also much stronger. So discrimination makes everyone feel like they don't belong, but people who are already marginalized because of social difference are affected the most especially racialized people. What does this say about Canada's widely touted image as a multicultural and inclusive nation? It points to how we're really not doing enough to prevent discrimination and racism. And so Canada has you know, a commitment to multiculturalism that promises equality and tolerance, but it clearly falls short of this. And I think one way in which it falls short is that as Kimlicka talks about it, multiculturalism treats difference as private. 
And so it assumes that any difference can be easily removed from public life and that it's enough for the state to treat every Canadian as equal and undifferentiated. But not all difference is private and not all difference is inconsequential. And so we see in this research and another research that there are high rates of discrimination being experienced by recent immigrants as well as racialized Canadians who've been here for generations. And so our main takeaway from this was the marginalization of racialized people in Canada. So as I mentioned right before accounting for the effects of discrimination, we did find generally lower levels of sense of belonging among racialized minorities, which already points to a negative relationship between racialization and feeling a sense of belonging. And so along with the stronger effects of discrimination on belonging for racialized minorities, this points to the precarious nature of the social position that racialized minorities find themselves in. So all that to say, while discrimination can trigger negative perception of one's own group for anyone, including for white people, the effect for white Canadians is likely mediated by the general social validation and the structural privileging of whiteness in Canada. So if we really want to encourage sense of belonging among everyone, clearly more needs to be done at the individual and the state level. Read the entire article, Perceived Racial and Cultural Discrimination and Sense of Belonging in Canadian Society, by Maria Finstotter and Zheng Wu in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Do mainstream Canadian media sources report on Indigenous matters in ways that differ from their reporting on non-Indigenous issues? Time to welcome our next guest. Uh, my name is Philip Burns. I'm a recent graduate of, of McGill University. My research interests focus on Indigenous issues, specifically surrounding issues with media representation. Philippe Burns, along with his co-author Aaron Shore, have published an article in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology titled Racial Stereotyping of Indigenous People in the Canadian Media, a Comparative Analysis of Two Water Pollution Incidents. The research is timely. Indigenous issues, specifically surrounding water issues, have always been a very prevalent issue, but when we began writing this was really at the climax of, of when these issues were being focused on in, in government, in popular culture, and we wanted to sort of examine that, and, and on top of that also examine the role the media played in portraying water issues, and so that's why we decided to focus on this paper specifically. Historical comparative research like this is challenging because it's hard to find real-world cases that are similar enough to allow for valid comparisons. The incidents featured in this article were, however, a perfect match. We, we wanted to look at whether or not there were distinctions in coverage that echo racial stereotypes. These towns were Walkerton, Ontario, and Kosheshawan, Ontario. And uh, Walkerton happened in 2000, and Kosheshawan happened in 2005. So, so we chose these two incidents because we wanted to garner a really clear comparison between how the media talked about water issues in white communities versus water issues in indigenous communities. So these two situations here where E. coli was found in the water source presented a really good comparison in the sense that both were around a similar size, a couple thousand, and both had water operators who were untrained. They were both using guesstimates to manage their, their water and both had nearly half of their population fall ill. And so we were able to 
have as many similar variables as possible and then use the media discourse surrounding those two issues to really compare how they discussed these two uh, issues there. So two public water crises in two very similar communities that occurred under very similar circumstances. Were they reported on differently? Burns and Shore set out to find out. What we did is we, we pulled articles from five years after these incidences occurred and from the news sources that were the Globe and Mail, the National Post and the Toronto Star, all nationally um, published news sources and all uh, had different leniences uh, in terms of political leniences. And, and so we decided to pull from these three that focused on both how they wrote about Walkerton and how they wrote about Kishishawan. So we managed to pull 282 articles, 123 focused on Kishishawan and 149 focused on Walkerton. And we did a qualitative in-depth analysis in order to really get a thorough understanding. And while we were looking at the articles, we did an open coding to allow themes and patterns to emerge so we could identify those themes and, and see how the discourse differed between the two articles there. What we also did to compare the discourse that was happening in the mainstream media is we also pulled 10 articles from the uh, only nationally distributed Indigenous newspaper called Windspeaker. So we pulled 10 articles from there as well to compare sort of the mainstream versus how Indigenous media was covering these issues as well. Their analysis revealed stark differences in the way settler media sources reported on the Walkerton water crisis on the one hand and the Kishishawan water crisis on the other. First way is how they treated the operators themselves. In both cases, these operators were untrained and, and lacked complete training. But the way they covered the operator in Walkerton, the white community, they held the operator as accountable for their actions, as a responsible man who had just simply made a mistake. And the way that they portrayed the water operator in Kishishuan, the Cree man, they discussed him as wholly incompetent and as requiring a, a white expert to be flown in to resolve the water issue. And, and you really have this discrepancy between the white community describing the operator as well-intentioned and the Cree man being described as incompetent, even though they were both guesstimating chlorine levels and and both lacked proper education. I, I think that's one of the most stunning findings. The, the other one here is the government response. The way that media discussed government response was that, you know, really the Ontario government put Walkerton in danger by underfunding and by simply not looking after the water and having enough of a focus. And we're calling for more investments into Walkerton and into funding the water there. That contrasted with the discourse in Kishishuan. Reporters were calling on this being an unnecessary waste of money, calling it Kishishu waste and not being uh, worthy of government attention and, and government focus, and that any investment was a waste. One reporter saying that bags of money were being dropped by a plane into the Kishishuan swamp. And so that was also one of the clear ways in terms of how they discuss government funding as well. Even though in Kishishwan there was $16 million spent on the evacuation of the community, whereas in Walkerton there was still $13.6 million spent on installing a new filtration system and $37 million spent in compensation as well to the families. 
historical context was also completely lacking in the reports in settler media sources. The last one there that I'll touch on briefly is the context and how there was a lack of context in reporting when reporting on Kishishuan. So reporters focused on describing the unemployment, the boredom, the, the drug and alcohol abuse, and they also described the state of dilapidation in the town, describing it as being caused by neglect, when in reality, what you see and when you're given the whole context, this is a town that was the victim of residential schools that were only abolished in 1987. It was forcibly relocated onto a floodplain and was not given enough investment and infrastructure to maintain the dike that surrounded the town. So this town suffers from flooding and, and that leads to a state of dilapidation. But reporters here were quite quick to blame the residents, you know, without giving any of, of this sort of context here. So really as a whole, the way the media has portrayed Kishishuan, which we didn't see in Walkerton, is in a way that perpetuates these stereotypes of, of Indigenous people and at least the residents of Kishishuan as being incapable, as being um, incompetent, apathetic towards their town. And, you know, when we looked at how the Windspeaker covered the same issue, we didn't find this sort of reporting at all. We found that they spoke of government funding as reconciliation for negligence and for crimes. And they gave the context that the settler media failed to look at. And also, again, when they were discussing dilapidated homes, they, they didn't simply mention the state of dilapidation and instead were quick to, to discuss how this was the cause of insufficient infrastructure and failing dikes around the community. Careful comparisons such as this one reveal the extent to which Indigenous people and communities in Canada are subject to racist reckonings, even in ostensibly objective media reports. Settler media portrays Indigenous people oftentimes as hapless victims who aren't able to you know, help themselves and ignore Indigenous perspectives. They often report Indigenous communities and Indigenous people as apathetic and unskilled and fail to give context on their situation. So I think the takeaway here is investigate how settler media is framing their discussion around Indigenous issues. And I think I want to draw attention here to the truth and reconciliation, their calls to action and their call to the federal government to give more funding to the CBC to improve coverage of Indigenous issues called on journalism schools to educate students on the history of Indigenous peoples. And so I think just investing in ways to achieve a more nuanced and balanced coverage of, of Indigenous issues. Racial Stereotyping of Indigenous People in the Canadian Media, a Comparative Analysis of Two Water Pollution Incidents by Philippe Burns and Aaron Shore, is in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. it for another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge. Thanks for listening.